If you have your Bibles, would you open with me to Luke chapter 23? As you're turning to Luke 23, I just want to express my gratitude to Pastor Ben and the other elders who have afforded me this opportunity to preach. It is probably the thing I enjoy most in this world is to preach the Word of God, and I'm I just am so thrilled every time I get an opportunity. I was joking with Pastor Ben last night. I don't actually do this, but I told this to someone once uh, that sometimes I secretly pray for Pastor Ben to get sick. Um, I don't actually do that. So, but in in this hope that you know he'll call me at like 10 p.m. Saturday night and say, "When you can you preach tomorrow?" And that's never happened. So. It's not a request according to God's will. Um, I don't actually pray that. just need to make that really clear. Um, you know, I'm very thankful for Pastor Ben and his influence in my life. Um, I can truly say I've learned more from him about ministry than anyone. And he's invested countless hours um, that he could be investing in many of you in me. And I really do pray that you steward those hours well. I'm very thankful. We're in Luke chapter 23. We're going to read verse 50 all the way to 56. This is the account of Jesus' burial according to Luke. So we'll start reading in Luke chapter 23, and we'll read verse 50 to 56. The text says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. If you have her bulletin in front of you, you'll notice there's an image on the front. That image was taken in a church in Israel. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And what you're looking at is something called the Dome of the Anastasis. Anastasis means resurrection. Now, directly under that dome is a shrine called the Edicula. And in this shrine is a very significant place of land. In fact, people, hundreds a day, maybe thousands, probably hundreds of thousands per year, maybe even millions, save up all their money so they can buy a plane ticket to Israel, go inside this church, stand in a very, very long line so they can go into this little space and pray a few words. What is the significance of that space that would prompt such devotion to go to that length? Is it that there's some mystical thing people will hope to experience when they go and pray in this location? Well, this site is believed to have been the place where Jesus was buried and rose again. They hope in in some way they'll experience God's grace afresh being in that location. And we know it is unique to 
walk where Jesus may have walked, but there is nothing really mystical that will happen apart from praying in any other location. But that does beg a question, and that's this. What is the significance of Jesus' burial? We hasten to talk about the resurrection, the thing that happens after Jesus is buried, and we give a lot of time about the crucifixion, but what is the significance of Jesus' burial? This morning, I would like to speak on that question buried according to God's plan from this text. What is the significance of Jesus' burial? Next week, we'll talk about the resurrection from Luke 24. As we ask this question, what is the significance of Jesus' burial? Maybe another question follows. Is it actually significant? Is the burial of Jesus a big deal? Or is it just you know, a, a, a placement of fact that gets you from the death to the resurrection? Is it just kind of a, a gap filler that Luke threw in there? Is there any theological significance whatsoever to the fact that Jesus was taken down off the cross and placed into a tomb? Is there any purpose in that for your life? Maybe your life seems to be spiraling out of control. You're repeatedly giving in to temptations of the flesh, or you're worried or anxious, or you're struggling with security in your place of employment, or you're concerned about an estranged family member who's walking away from the Lord. What is the significance of Jesus' burial? How would the fact that Jesus' burial be of encouragement to you this morning? Well, by way of significance, it's interesting, the passage that Pastor Ben read this morning from 1 Corinthians 15, in the statement where Paul says, I am proclaiming to you the gospel, he includes the burial of Jesus Christ. But beyond that, all four gospels include the burial of Jesus Christ. And think with me for a moment, not all four gospels include the birth of Jesus Christ, but yet we believe in the theological significance of that. Not all four gospels include many of the the infancy narratives, Only Luke's gospel includes that. So what is the significance that all four gospel writers would include Jesus being buried? Is it simply that he was proved to be dead by having a burial? Well, this morning, what does Luke's record of Jesus' burial teach us? And we'll answer that question, just a simple statement. And that is that Jesus was buried according to God's plan. Jesus was buried exactly according to God's plan. If you read the book of Luke from cover to cover, you'll find something very interesting. That Luke includes this one little word that we often read over, we look over, but it's very significant, and it's the word must. It's translated in your Bibles, must. Just to go through a couple references, Luke 2.49, Jesus says, I must be in my father's house Luke 4, 43, Jesus says, I must preach good news. Luke 9, 22, I must suffer, be rejected, killed, and raised on the third day. Luke 17, 25, I must suffer and be rejected by this generation. Luke twenty two thirty seven. all of the scripture must be fulfilled. Or Luke 24, 7, Jesus must be delivered over to the Pharisees, crucified, rise again on the third day. You read Luke's gospel and you get this conclusion in your mind, there is no other way. Everything that happened in Jesus' life, from his birth to his death on the cross and even his burial was exactly according to God's plan. And we affirm that. We affirm that God is in control of all things, but still, how does that help us 
How does the fact that the burial of Jesus was according to God's plan, where is the encouragement? Well, to stop asking the same question so many times and to start answering it, I'll give you five reasons the burial is an encouragement to us. And these are also five proofs that the burial was exactly according to God's plan. All of them, except for one, start with the letter P, so that might be easy to remember. Thankfully, the last one does not, so you don't spend the entirety of the sermon thinking how to cram that last point into a series of alliteration, which some of you may be tempted to do. But five ways in which the burial of Jesus Christ is according to God's plan and therefore an encouragement. Look with me at verse 50. And the first way the burial encourages us is this, and that is the person, the person who buries Jesus. Look at verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. A man named Joseph. The reason this person is an encouragement to us that Jesus' burial, and we know this was exactly according to God's plan, is that this is the last person you would expect to bury Jesus. Look at what it describes Joseph like. He was a member of the council. The council being the Sanhedrin, the very group who had schemed and was conniving and plotting all throughout Luke's gospel to put Jesus to death. A man from that group is the one who takes his body off the cross, wraps it in a linen shroud, and puts it in the tomb. The last person you would expect to do a service to Jesus Christ is the one who buries him. What's interesting about this is Luke calls this man, look at the text, verse 50, good and righteous. How could a member of the Sanhedrin who put Jesus to death, how could that person be called good and righteous? Luke, have you analyzed this situation properly? Well, a couple other individuals in Luke who are called good and righteous, we Zachariah, Elizabeth, Simeon, Anna, these are people who were characterized as righteous. How could Joseph, a Sanhedrin member, be put in the same category as those? Or even further still, just one chapter previously, the centurion looks at Jesus and says, this man is righteous. How could Luke use the same word for Joseph, a member of the group who put Jesus to death? Well, look at verse 51. This man had not consented to their decision and action. There's a play on words going here. The idea of being a member of the council is the same idea as a decision. It's he was a counselor who did not agree with the counsel that was given. Luke's drawing attention to this fact that he was the one disputer. He was the one person who said, we should not put this man to death. This man is innocent. He has not blasphemed God. He has not sinned. Why are we stony? Why do we desire to crucify him? This man disagreed. He rejected the decision of the other religious leaders. And Luke makes this really clear. Look at the beginning of verse 52. This doesn't have to be included. Luke could have just said he, but he says this man. This man. He draws attention to Joseph. Joseph is the last person you would expect to bury Jesus. And this fits in our understanding of Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel has this theme all throughout of divine reversal, something that you would not expect taking place. The beginning, Mary's Magnificat, she says, 
the humble will be exalted and the proud will be torn down from their lofty estate. Luke 1, 51 through 52. In the Gospel of Luke, we read that some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. Luke 13, 30. Twice, Jesus says, if you save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, you will find it. Luke 9, 24 and 17, 33. And not just the statements of Jesus or Luke, actually the narratives indicate this. Zacchaeus, a tax collector, one whom you would not expect to receive the blessing of Jesus Christ, Jesus eats with this man, goes to his home, and this man's sins are forgiven. A sinful woman in the presence of a Pharisee has her sins forgiven, and a Pharisee rebuked by Jesus. The religious are rebuked, the sinful are forgiven. Or even the parables, the good Samaritan, who is the one who takes care of the man who's been beaten and robbed on the road. It's the one you would least expect, the Samaritan, not the religious. In the parable of the prodigal son, who is the one whom is blessed? It's the younger brother, the one who has sinned abundantly. Who is the man in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus who goes to Abraham's side? It's Lazarus, the poor, the lowly. The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, all these parables are unique to Luke. He's drawing attention to this fact. The tax collector comes away justified. You read these stories and you come to this conclusion. The very person that I would expect to have their sins forgiven, the very person that I would expect to be a recipient of God's grace, is not the one who receives it. It's the very opposite. And so just when you started to figure out, yep, the Pharisees are going to be condemned. Yep, the Pharisees, they're not going to receive something good from the Lord. They're going to be rebuked and scolded. Luke throws you a curveball at the very end of his gospel because it's a member of the Sanhedrin who buries Jesus. What's the point of all this? How's the encouragement there for us? Just when we think we figured out how God's saving plan works, God gives us something unexpected. God's grace comes to your life and you realize, I did not deserve this. Some of you in here if we looked at your life prior to conversion, you are the last person we would expect ever to receive God's grace. And yet you sit here as a testimony to the fact that Jesus has saved you from your sins. Is that not exalt Jesus Christ? Is the encouragement there for us? That as Jesus is buried by a sinful, wicked man, we see ourselves as the recipient of God's undeserved grace. Well, beyond the person who buries Jesus, there's encouragement in verse 52. This is found in the petition, the request of Joseph. Look at verse 52. It says, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. We read over this phrase and we think, you know, there's little to analyze here. What's the significance of this request to bury Jesus? I think part of that comes with our own understanding of the cultural context Burial. In our culture, here in the States, we minimize burial in many ways. We, sure, we pay a lot of money for it to occur, but as far as the actual process of preparing the body and placing it in the ground, few times are we the one to actually do it. We, we push that off as far as possible. We'll go at extreme lengths to pay someone else a, a handsome sum of money to take care of that for us. But 
we're not going to be involved in that process. This is in direct contrast to Jewish culture in which this occurred. Burial was really a family enterprise. You think of someone like Joseph in the Old Testament. His bones were carried up from Egypt so that he could be buried with family. Think about others in the Old Testament buried together with families. Burial was a family enterprise. It was something very significant, something valued. And yet in Roman culture, when this was written, when this happened to Jesus, the Roman historian Tacitus tells us that it was against Roman law for a condemned criminal who was crucified to be buried. It was not permitted. Other historians tell us that sometimes Jews in a group would would come to to whoever the governor was, and they would ask to have a burial take place, and occasionally it would be permitted. Or they would hasten the death of the crucifixion. They'd break the legs of the person so that they could get the person off of the cross and bury them before Sabbath. And that may be true. But the point is this. Joseph is going out of his way to make this petition. What would prompt Joseph to make this request? What would prompt Joseph to ask for the body of Jesus to bury it. It's found in a passage in our Old Testament. I just want to turn there. You can turn there with me. It's Deuteronomy chapter 21. Why would Joseph go at such lengths to bury Jesus? Why would he disagree with everyone else? Well, Deuteronomy 21, verse 22 through 23. Think that this is written almost 1,500 years prior to this event. Verse 22 of Deuteronomy 21, it says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God has given you. You can turn back with me to Luke 23. Why would Joseph come to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus? He's honoring the word of God. In other words, this. Over almost 1,500 years prior, God breathed out his word in such a way that the burial of Jesus would be necessary the same day. And this is what we see take place. This is exactly according to God's plan. Joseph, who is desiring to righteously follow the law of God, is unlike the rest of these so-called righteous Pharisees who are nowhere to be found asking to bury the body of Jesus. Those who exalt themselves are following God's law to the letter of the law to even the smallest degree. Where are they? Nowhere. But yet here is a man who desires to follow God's will for the burial What does that tell us about God's plan? Where is the encouragement? Does God care about the most minute details of your life? If he and his word would write almost 1,500 years prior something that would necessitate the burial in this fashion, what do you think he cares about the things that you often overlook? The things that we so often don't even think about? Perhaps how we use some of our time. Maybe you're chopping up vegetables for a meal. Do you think God cares how you use 
your mind during that time? Perhaps you've just ordered something in a drive-thru and it's that awkward time after you've ordered before you get to the window. You think God cares what goes through your mind and how you think in that time period? Does God care about the most insignificant details of your life? Yes, he does. And that is a great weight, but that is also a great encouragement. Because in the most seemingly insignificant things, God is bringing strands from all different areas of your life and he's weaving them together to accomplish his divine purpose so that he may glorify himself. There's a third thing about this burial that acts as an encouragement for us beyond just the petition, beyond just the person, it's found in the placement. Look at verse 53. Then he, being Joseph, took it, the body of Jesus, down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. This verse is quite interesting because it reveals something about the quality of Joseph's life. A tomb that was cut in stone, particularly one in which the text makes detail to mention no one had ever been laid in this tomb. This tomb would have been of value. It would have been immense wealth associated with a person who could bury someone in this place. So for Joseph to place Jesus in this tomb indicates that Joseph was not a poor man. Joseph was wealthy, which if you know your Old Testament scriptures may bring a verse to your remembrance. Isaiah 53, the prophecy about the Messiah who will come and suffer, he will be with a rich man in his death. Even the very tomb in which he's buried indicates something about the fulfillment of God's word, that God's plan is carrying itself out to the very little details. But there's something even beyond this, and that is in this word, laid at the end of verse 53. If you read your English Bible, you'll see the word laid occurs three times. But here at the end of verse 53, where it says no one had ever been laid, it's not the same word as the other times. This word that is translated here only occurs actually six times in Luke and Acts together. And three of those are in chapter two of Luke. It's as if Luke is creating a parallel between what occurs in Jesus' burial and what occurs in Luke chapter two and that is Jesus' birth. Twice this word refers to Jesus lying in the manger. And so it's like this. Luke is creating these parallel scenes to indicate something about Jesus' life. This is a man who is lowly, who is humble, who will be the king of kings and the savior of the world, and yet look at his estate. Born in a manger, buried in a tomb. Is this the person you would expect to come and save us from our sins? This isn't the only parallel between Jesus' birth and Jesus' burial. Joseph, as I already mentioned, is characterized by the same characteristics as all the people in Jesus' birth narrative. Zechariah, Elizabeth, Simeon, Anna, all described as righteous. In fact, even the description waiting for the kingdom of God that's ascribed to Joseph parallels Luke chapter 2. It's as if you can't read Luke's burial apart from Luke's birth, his rendering of Jesus' life. What is the encouragement for us in this? It's that it reveals something about the nature of God's plan. God's plan 
involves the lowly. God's plan involves humiliation. You think about the humiliation of the incarnation in Jesus' life, but it didn't just stop there. God becoming man, but it went even further. Philippians 2 tells us that he humbled himself, being Jesus, to the point of death. Jesus' burial teaches us that humility precedes exaltation. Humility comes before Christ is exalted. What does that encourage us with? The difficult circumstances that are going on in your life where you are weeping and crying and you may have never even thought that was possible for you. The things that break your heart, that bring you to the point of total desperation on the Lord, those things are the thing that God is using to exalt himself. Those are the things that God is using to bring himself glory. The humility that God breaks us with and brings us into our lives, the humility that God brings into our lives is how he brings himself glory. God's plan involves the lowly. And one other consideration about this, you think about Joseph's life. One moment he's given in the entirety of the scriptures. One act of service. That's his moment. Who knows what he did prior He may have failed many, 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 many times over. And yet God in his sovereignty and his grace sees fit for Joseph to be the one to bury him. It may not matter how many times you have failed in the past. God will use you on one condition. That you are humble before him. One moment is all that's needed. A moment of humility. Well, that brings us to a fourth way in which this burial is an encouragement to us. And that is seen by the idea of pilgrimage. Pilgrimage. Look at verse 55. The text reads, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments pilgrimage. These were no ordinary women. The text makes it really clear that they had come with him from Galilee. Now, the other gospel writers, they actually name these women in the burial account, but Luke chooses not to. In fact, if you keep reading, it's not because Luke doesn't know the names of these women. If you read the resurrection account, he lists them. Verse 10, it was Mary and Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. He names them. He knows who they are. But for some reason, at the burial, he doesn't choose to disclose their identity. Why would you not give them their names at this point in the narrative? Why delay? What is the purpose in that? Well, perhaps it's because he's drawing attention not so much to their identity, but to the specific action that is associated with them. If you look there in your Bibles, it says this, that they had come with Jesus from Galilee. This is a repetition in Luke's gospel. He's already told us this fact about these women. If you look with me previously, Luke 23, verse 49, they're there at the cross. And it says the same thing. It says, these are the women who had followed him from Galilee. These women are women who had put aside everything in their life on hold. 
to follow Jesus Christ because he was the Messiah. Because this person had the power to save them from their sins. Everything in their life was insignificant in comparison to following Christ. That was what was important. And that's what Luke is spotlighting. These were followers who followed Jesus to the bitter end and beyond. These women, maybe they didn't know that Jesus was going to resurrect. They didn't know that he was going to be raised from the dead. Maybe they didn't believe it. We don't know. But in spite of his death, they take the time and the costly sacrifice to prepare spices and ointments. To serve a ministry to the body of our Savior. These women had given up everything for Christ. What does that teach us about the plan of God? What does that inform us about our understanding? Well, if you read Luke's gospel, you'll notice something that Luke gives significant attention to the ministry of women. At the beginning of Luke, Luke chapter 1 and 2, we have songs and prayers of women, Elizabeth and Mary. Throughout Luke's gospel, we have narratives that are not in the other gospels that are unique about women. Mary and Martha before Jesus and others that display Christ's attention to ministering to the needs of women. And why would Luke give such an attention to this? Well, in the culture at this time period, women were seen as the last place of significance. They were not valued as perhaps equal to a man. They were looked down upon. Why would Jesus Christ come and minister to a woman? What would be the value of that? And Luke is directly running countercultural in his writing of this gospel. Jesus comes and ministers to slaves, to tax collectors, to people who are scorned in society, and he comes and he ministers to women. In our culture, this is often seen as controversial. And definitely we affirm the role of women in our church, that they are equals, but equality does not determine function. A man and a woman have different functions. We understand this, but yet in God's eyes, there is no distinction. Galatians tells us there is no Jew, no Greek, nor male, nor female. He's not saying those distinctions are no longer in existence. He is saying in God's eyes, they are equal, although they have differences. Luke has that in mind and he writes this displaying the ministry of God, the ministry of Jesus Christ to women. What is the application for us? Maybe you're a woman in here and you're wondering, well, God has not appointed me to be an elder of this church. I'm never going to stand up in a church and preach because that's not what God has planned. It's not in his redemptive will. What is the significance for me? What ministry can I have for the Lord? Read Luke's gospel. Read Luke's gospel. It's women who are seen at the burial. It's women who are laboring and sacrificing to prepare spices and ointments to anoint the body of Jesus. And how is it that God uses women? It's the same in which God uses men. God, which is, God uses everyone. And it's this. It's individuals making a decision to put aside their life, to put the things that they value most on hold to follow Christ. 
Maybe I'm speaking to some of you in this morning, and you're at a young age, you're a teenage girl. Now is the time. Now is the hour. It's the moment for you to put everything else in your life on hold and say, I want to follow Christ. There is nothing I desire more than to serve him with every aspect of my life. This is the moment for you to make that choice, to decide for God's grace in your life to come to fruition. And for us us here who are not women, who are men, the same is true for us. God desires to use us for the advancement of his glory Can we learn something from these women who have put their life on hold to follow Christ? God's plan involves God's grace going to everyone. Well, there's one fifth component of this burial that indicates something about God's plan is an encouragement to us. And it's the timing. Or if you really want alliteration, you can think of the word pause. I guess they're somewhat synonymous. Timing. If you look at verse 54, it says, It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. Smack dab in the middle of the narrative, you have a reference to time. What time all these events are taking place. It'd be like opening a book. In the very middle of the book, it says, once upon a time. That would seem out of place, wouldn't it? what, What is going on? Why is the author saying, once upon a time, or why is he drawing attention to the time period in which these events take place in the very middle of the writing? Well, if you notice again, he mentions the time period at verse 56. He says, on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Twice, Luke mentions the timing of these events. The Sabbath day is looming over all of this story. Its shadow is in every aspect of the narrative. You're thinking, you're reading, Joseph, hurried up, bury the body, the Sabbath is coming. You women preparing the spices, hurry it up, anoint the body before the Sabbath occurs. The Sabbath day is looming over, Luke is drawing attention to its presence. Why would Luke draw attention to that? Well, what occurs on the Sabbath day? Nothing. Or actually something more specific than nothing. Rest. Rest occurs. No burial occurs on the Sabbath. No giving of spices and anointments. None of that occurs. Here in the story, we have a pause. A pause, and many questions come to our minds. What were the disciples doing? What did the women do with that day? How many fears and doubts and uncertainties happened on that day? A day that God had instituted a day that God had given commandment to his people to observe, why would he place that smack dab in the middle of the prospects of Jesus being raised? Why would that precede the resurrection? Why is the Sabbath looming over this? Well, notice with me the final words of verse 56. And the Sabbath looms over this narrative to indicate something. According to the commandment. This is exactly as God planned. God knew that the Sabbath would be occurring right before the resurrection. So again, 
What is God's plan? Why is this occurring? What is the encouragement for us? Could it be this? The plan of God involves waiting, involves silence, involves testing, delay, pause. Are those the things that often give us the most angst and struggle? When we desire something and we hope for it and we pray for it and it doesn't occur. And perhaps I could speak specifically to prayers and desires and hopes that some would come to Christ. Is not waiting almost the essence of that prayer? You pray and you desire and you hope and you wait. And you wait and you continue waiting for the person whom you desire to come to Christ to turn their life to Christ and give it to him, to give him their all. Waiting is an essential part of God's plan. It is in every aspect. Perhaps you're praying for a loved one, a child. You've poured your life into them and you continue to do so. Maybe they're only 10 or 12 or 14. You have no guarantee that they're going to give their life to Christ and follow him. And yet you continue to be faithful and to minister to them and to preach the gospel to them and to urge them to repent. Do you have any guarantee that that will occur? There's no promise in scripture that says your child will be saved. The only promise in scripture about the salvation of the one you pray for is this. If they repent and come to Christ and believe on him for the forgiveness of their sins, they will be saved. That's a promise that we go to the bank on. We base our life on that promise. But there's no guarantee that will happen to the ones whom we love. And thus incurs the waiting, the patience, the angst. Maybe you're praying for a brother or a friend or a parent or a coworker, and you've been praying for them for year after year. And you don't know, is God going to save this person? Does, not, not, does that not demand total and utter trust in the plan of God? It does. It demands total glory going to him. Some of you know that some of the people who have attended here have attended seminary at the Master's Seminary. And recently they had their commencement exercises. And I was out of town, so I was live streaming them. And there was an individual who was going to graduate right before one of the individuals who attended church here, Paul. This man was walking across the stage, and I think he was maybe 70, you know, in that age area, and he walked across the stage, and he got his diploma, and he walked down the stage, and he had a heart attack, and he died right there. This was about two months ago. What do you think people thought? Do you think people had these questions? Why? God, why would you allow this man to devote years of his life and labor, time he could have been ministering to studying the scriptures so that he could get a degree only for him to walk across the stage and pass away. Why would that occur? God, what are you doing? Surely something is not going according to plan. All the effort wasted. Surely his family had those questions as many in the congregation did that day. But I had the privilege of attending the memorial service just a month ago in the middle of June. And I'll never forget this. 
in the moment when it came for individuals to give a testimony about this man who had passed away, his son got up and he walked to the pulpit and he could barely make it through the testimony, weeping at almost at every word. But the final lines came out of his lips and he said, I put my faith in Christ. I repented of my sin and believed on him after this event took place. This event was the catalyst that brought his son to Christ. How many hours, how many days, how many moments do you think this man and his wife had prayed for their son? How much labor of love do you think they had invested in him? And yet when everything seems like it's not going according to plan, God rushes in and says, this is my will. This is exactly how I have seen fit to do this. God, why couldn't he have been accepted Christ? Why couldn't he have come to faith in Christ before? Why did this have to be necessary for that? And even then, we, we don't fully know all the purposes that God is accomplishing through that occurrence. But we do know something. That everything that God plans, every aspect is for his own glory. And so God can use a death or a disease or an illness or some other difficult circumstances in our lives to accomplish his purpose, his plan. And so even the burial of Jesus Christ teaches this, that in the moment of waiting, God is still accomplishing his purposes because the resurrection will occur. The resurrection, the guarantee of God's purpose. Every aspect of this narrative Every aspect of this story impresses upon us this one point. That everything is going according to God's plan. How would that impact your trust in him? How would that impact your prayer life before him? How would that impact your efforts to evangelize those whom you love? How would that affect the little details of your life? How would that affect the things that you think are insignificant? I pray and I hope that a consideration of God's plan, even in the burial of Jesus Christ, moves us to worship. It moves us to praise him because all of this is done for his own glory. All of this is done so that he gets the praise, he gets the honor, and we are the ones give it to him. So let's do that this morning. Would you bow your heads with me?